Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Mike Ryback. I'm a professor of pharmacy and adjunct professor of medicine at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences at Wayne State University. I also serve as a scientific editor for infectious diseases for pharmacotherapy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Joseph Carino. Dr. Carino is an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Dr. Carino and his co-authors, Nimish Patel, Jeanette Bouchard, Meredith Oliver, and Melissa Badowski were selected by the Society of Infectious Disease Pharmacists to provide an overview on the early clinical trial data and real-world assessment of the COVID-19 vaccines. This manuscript will be published in the October 2021 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Joe, thank you for this timely review on this important topic, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Mike. It's an honor to be here representing our group. So, Joe, let's get started with the, the basics. Can you please go over the basic differences between the three current COVID-19 vaccines? That would be the Pfizer, Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson. So when I think about these vaccines, there are a few important differences that we highlight in the manuscript. The first difference is the technology used in these vaccines. So BNT162B2 or the Pfizer vaccine, which I'll be referring to uh, for the rest of the podcast, and the mRNA1273 or the Moderna vaccine are both considered mRNA vaccines. While AD26.cov2.s, that's why everyone calls it J&J or Johnson & Johnson, is a non-replicating viral vector-based vaccine. In Pfizer and Moderna, both of them deliver mRNA, which is then translated by our bodies into SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. In contrast, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses a viral vector or carrier to deliver non-integrating DNA for spike protein. The second and maybe more obvious difference is the dosing schedule. The Pfizer vaccine is given as a two-dose series intramuscularly, 21 days apart. In contrast, the Moderna vaccine is given 28 days apart. Finally, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is given as a single intramuscular injection. Thanks, Joe. Um, in the review, you mentioned that data indicates that the vaccines infer immunity within two weeks post-vaccination and then for six months. Is this data for all three vaccines, number one? And also, is this based on a specific IgG titer threshold? So immunity is an incredibly complex topic that involves multiple cell lineages. So I'll start kind of with the second question, and I'll cover which vaccines we are referring to throughout the answer. So when we refer to vaccines lasting for about six months or immunity being for about six months, we mean there's data to suggest two things. And the first thing is the point estimate and confidence interval for that effectiveness at preventing COVID-19. So again, we're very specific about that COVID-19 being SARS-CoV-2 positive tests plus uh, COVID-19 symptoms. So the clinical effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 still meets the FDA criteria for efficacy, which was a point estimate for efficacy greater than 50% with a lower bound of the confidence interval greater than 30% at six months. So that's really what we mean by there's data to support they last at least six months. And that was uh, based on the original clinical trial for Pfizer. And that long-term follow-up data actually just came out on September 15th in New England Journal of Medicine. Now, that study was done 
prior to the impact or any meaningful impact of multiple variants. It was really only with alpha and beta variant. So there might be some differences that we see now in the age of the variants. And so there's a new article in Lancet that came out on October 4th that might provide additional insights on what the duration of immunity is with the variants. The second thing we mean by these vaccines may last at least six months is that the antibody titers may persist for up to six months. And so there are data for mRNA-1273 or the Moderna vaccine that shows that antibody levels are very high at six months. So your question is, is very well taken. How high is enough? Um, unfortunately, in our review, we weren't able to identify a human correlate of immunity or a specific level that would correspond to being high enough. But we do review some of the animal model data in that paper. And what we found was that um, in the animal models, an antibody titer of at least 50 may be associated with partial protection against wild-type SARS-CoV-2. And so for us, that was really exciting because the Moderna vaccine did show that at six months, the antibody level was above that titer. This could all change as the uh, variants continue to emerge. Thanks for that explanation. Joe, I found it interesting that the primary efficacy endpoints for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine were based on attack rates, vaccine versus placebo, while the J&J vaccine was based on cumulative incidents. Can you explain the differences? And what, one other thing, is there any knowledge why there are different definitions for efficacy being used for these vaccines? So cumulative incidents and hazard are, are defined by a number of cases per person time. And hazard has the added benefit of censorship. In contrast, attack rate does not account for person time or censorship or sensor observations. One of the beautiful things about the way that each of these phase three studies was designed is whether you use attack rate or cumulative incidence, it would only slightly change the estimates for vaccine efficacy. And the overall interpretation of the data would actually remain the same. This is so because each study had nearly identical person time follow-up in the placebo group and the vaccine group. For example, in the Moderna study, the person time follow-up was about 0.3% difference between the vaccine and placebo group. And there was little censorship between each study. So in the clinical trials, it didn't make a huge difference whether or not you use attack rate or cumulative incidence rate ratio or hazard ratio. Where it actually becomes more important is in the real-world effectiveness data, because many of those observational studies had unstructured follow-up. So you can have vastly different person time between unvaccinated and vaccinated study subjects. So unlike the clinical trials, real-world studies that report risk may be more susceptible to information bias from loss of follow-up as compared to the hazards, because risks don't inherently measure a duration of subjects time within a cohort. That's a subtle but important difference for trying to interpret these observational studies and compare them to these clinical trials. Joe, thanks for that. And you mentioned real world data. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, in this review paper, you go over some of that real world data for the vaccines. I was particularly interested in the data of the vaccines, especially for the frontline workers. For example, I believe it was 91% effective for reducing COVID-19 and symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. Uh, since writing this paper, is there any data on protection against any of the new variants that you're aware of? You know, Mike, I was really impressed with the real-world effectiveness of these vaccines. 
because there's so many different reasons why the real world effectiveness doesn't always mirror the clinical trials efficacy. Specific to these vaccines, you have to consider, will the patients complete the full vaccine series? Or are they going to show up for that second shot? Will patients change behavior post-vaccination? And as you said, will variants emerge that will reduce the efficacy of the vaccine? So focusing in on your question about variants, we were able to identify several large population-based studies of vaccine effectiveness against the Delta variant, which is the predominant variant currently. And so both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were effective at preventing disease caused by the Delta variant. However, that comes with a big disclaimer, right? Effective is defined as meeting the FDA criteria for effectiveness. So the point estimate being at least 50% with the lower bound of the confidence interval, not less than 30%. And that was met um, in the real world studies for Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So statistically speaking, they were effective. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that those observed point estimates for efficacy were lower. So you have to wonder why is that the case? I think that there's some, it's some combination of reduced antibody binding affinity and lower antibody titers. Last point is if you look at the data closely, you'll notice that while the vaccines didn't always prevent acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 variant infection, they did prevent many of the most critical patient outcomes, such as severe COVID-19, hospitalization, and death. And I think that's a really important point from an individual patient perspective and a public health perspective. Thanks, Joe. You know, staying with this real world data uh, regarding these investigations, did the investigators evaluate two vaccine doses versus one dose? And also, this is an important question everybody wants to know, uh, did they take into account individuals that were previously infected and had natural immunity? And then finally, is it possible that individuals were evaluated in these studies had natural immunity plus vaccine versus vaccine alone? Yeah, Mike. Um, So we had the same question. And so we have a nice section in the manuscript about two doses versus one dose. And we did go over some real world evaluations of two doses versus, versus one dose. And in general, the real world data mirrored the efficacy seen in clinical trials, meaning that there was higher effectiveness um, in preventing COVID-19 after the second dose as compared to the first dose. What was very interesting is we also found some data to suggest that patients with previous SARS-CoV-2 infections, so that means whether they were asymptomatic or symptomatic, one dose of vaccine produced the same antibody titers as two doses in those that did not have a previous SARS-CoV-2 infection. I think that data is pretty important because across the globe, there's currently a scarcity of vaccine. And so understanding that some individuals may only need one dose you know, in the initial phase to get started, that can actually help move the vaccination campaign forward quickly in those areas that don't have high access to vaccines. Thanks, Joe. We certainly want to get that vaccine circulated around the globe. You know, here's another question for you. Safety is always a major concern with any drug and, of course, with vaccines. Can you discuss some of the hurdles in collecting safety data post-vaccination? Yeah, so this is going to be administered to maybe every every person across the globe. So you want to make sure it's safe because even if there's small safety signals that can have a large impact given the vast number of doses we're going to be given. So one of the main ways that uh, we're currently collecting vaccine safety data in the United States is called VSAFE. VSAFE is a voluntary program where patients 
self-enroll to receive text messages that connect them to web-based surveys at various time points post-vaccination. While it is an improvement from the VARIES or Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, because it's a spontaneous and voluntary reporting system, it's limited because of the quality of information you're going to obtain. So the two main issues that we kind of highlight in the manuscript is that one, it's a voluntary system. So you're never going to really be able to have the full denominator because not everyone will participate. And two, since the program is smartphone slash web-based, it may disproportionately exclude certain populations who are technologically illiterate or from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay, well, let's stick with the uh, side effect theme here. Post-vaccine launch, there, there were several cases of thrombosis, thrombocytopenia syndrome that were reported with the J&J vaccine specifically. Can you comment on these cases and the potential risk groups? Yeah, so TTS is an incredibly rare side effect that was observed in some patients getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. When we say incredibly rare, we want to quantify that. So only about 28 cases out of approximately 8 million doses as of May 2021. Despite it being incredibly uncommon, there were some patterns that were seen. So the median age of the TTS cases were was 40, and the cases primarily occurred in women. So because of the observed demographics, the CDC recommends that women under 50 should be made aware of the potential for increased TTS. Although one caveat that we should mention too is it's unclear if the occurrence of TTS among those that received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was greater than the expected rate in the general population. So it's really hard to draw a cause and effect relationship. But since we do have three vaccines available, if individuals are concerned about specific side effects, if they fall in this group, then they can choose to get a different vaccine. So Joe, myocarditis and pericarditis adverse events were observed primarily in children. Uh, Can you discuss with us the incidence of these adverse events uh, that were reported? And is there anything that can be done to minimize this risk, especially now since the latest news that we're now trying to get the vaccines even to younger age, those individuals that are over five. You know, being a new father myself, I'm extremely interested in all the data coming out for children. But importantly, it's also children make up about 25% of the population in the U.S. So we want to make sure they get vaccinated so we can hit that magical number for herd immunity, whatever that number may be. So um, in our article, we reviewed data from VARIES and the vaccine safety data link, and that was used to calculate incidence rates for myocarditis. What was found was that the case rate was incredibly low at 4.4 per million mRNA vaccines administered after one dose and 12.6 per million mRNA vaccines administered after two doses. We weren't able to identify any specific strategies for preventing myocarditis. However, if you think about preventing myocarditis, pericarditis in children, we should also think about the association between COVID-19 and myocarditis. Although this wasn't included in the manuscript, after we prepared it, uh, we did find a large-scale evaluation of the association between myocarditis and COVID-19 among hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and that was published in MMWR on September 3rd of this year. In that study of over 36 million people, the risk of myocarditis was reported at 0.133% or 1,330 cases per million COVID cases in hospitalized children aged less than 16 with COVID. 
Now, obviously, there's some limitations to comparing children um, hospitalized with COVID-19 to children receiving the vaccine. But since we know that the vaccines prevent COVID-19 in children and hospitalization uh, for COVID-19, I think there is some merit in comparing these populations. And so when you think about 1,300 uh, per million COVID cases versus 12.6 per million COVID vaccines administered, you see that the risk of myocarditis is actually quite low compared to what would be expected in patients with COVID-19 and hospitalized. And so I think some of that risk-benefit calculation is also part of what went into the CDC's and American Academy of Pediatrics continued endorsement of the full vaccine series in eligible pediatric patients. So the most recent trials were carried out in the pediatric population. Regarding these trials, were they handled any differently than the adult trials in terms of vaccine administration or maybe in timing of the administration? So as our colleagues in pediatrics will always tell us, children are not just little adults. So it does make sense to have some dose adjustments in these studies. For the Pfizer vaccine, um, it's still being administered as an IM shot 21 days apart, but the dose depends on the age group. So for ages 12 to 15, the same dose is being used, but for ages 11 and under, the dose is reduced. For the Moderna study, the vaccine is still being administered as a two-dose series given 28 days apart. And for patients aged 12 to 17, the same adult dose is used. And interestingly, for those age 11 and under, Moderna is also investigating the adult dose as well as reduced doses. And for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're evaluating both single dose and two dose regimens in patients aged 12 to 17. So it'll be really exciting to see what that all brings. Joe, this was really a great and very timely review of the, of the current vaccines that are available. Are there any last final information that you would like to leave with us regarding these vaccines, future steps or knowledge gaps that need to be answered? I think the final message is a simple one. These vaccines are safe and effective. The more data that emerges, the more we can reliably say this. So clinicians continue to emphasize that vaccine is the most reliable way to get immunity against COVID-19. As far as knowledge gaps go, I'm very excited to see the data from the pediatric clinical trials. I wholeheartedly feel for all the parents out there just waiting to get their children vaccinated. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us today on the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure.